Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar putting on our legal hats today as we bring you another Oscar Race Checkpoint episode. Uh, about a week or so overdue, but we really uh, put on our lawyer caps and dove into what is going on in these Paramount decrees and this decision to overturn those decrees and all of the industry uh, effects that will come out as a result of these decrees being overturned. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. We're going to get into all of it. I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host also, Mike. Yeah, you put on your lawyer cap because you are, in fact, a lawyer. <laughs> You're the Esquire of the uh, two of us today, Mike, uh-huh. Mike, and Oscar Esquire. Yeah. It would be you. Uh, I just read Wikipedia, I read the trades, and I read all of your copy in advance, and I learned a lot. So I'm, I'm excited for today. I'm excited at the side conversations uh, that I think we'll have. We'll have some speculative conversations about what this all means for the industry, whether it's, you know, big movie chains or independent movie theaters, whether it's uh, the movie studios at large or the streamers. I think there are a lot of ripple effects potentially from this case, or it might just be a political stunt and uh, <laughs> we're dealing with it in that regard. But uh, you did. You spent a lot of time on this uh, Sunday, last night. You're going to differentiate old Hollywood and new, eventually yeah. leading to that speculative discussion about the industry's future, Mike. But, you know, first... You know, the first segment for today is that we're going to go back through the history and the origins of the case. Yeah, and I think it's important, too, because you got to kind of see uh, the landscape. And there is, I mean, yes, this is a decision that came out 10 days ago, but it goes back to 1948. But the reality is it goes back to like 1921, and it's been pretty much part of Hollywood for a century now, and it's been a big deal. And depending on who you talk to, people on uh, film Twitter are either thinking this is the end of the movie industry as we know it, or it's you know just another uh, court decision that doesn't really affect their day-to-day lives. So like you said, we're going to get into the ins and outs of all of it. Uh, I try to break down the decision in, in, in layman's terms as best I can. Also, Mike is kind of going to be the audience conduit for this, because if I still talk too much or use too many words or am saying something that isn't clear, Mike's going to jump in with a question and we're going to have some discussions like he said. So let's uh, let's dive in and talk about this Paramount case. And before we talk about the Paramount decrees being overturned, we should talk about why the Paramount decrees were put in place in the first place. And that'll hopefully give everyone a better understanding about what uh, is going on with these things. So let's talk about this 1940 case that came out of the Southern District of New York. Now, stemmed- can I make... Now, can I... Uh, yeah, this is going to be hard. Uh, do I have to say objection <laughs> When I cut you off, <laughs> well, you can just say stop and and, and stop. interject. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, ahead. I no, I, I want to say I object. I object to you using place twice. You redundant, uh, you know, uh, Esquire here. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, let's, let's do it. <laughs> this is going to be the kind of content I. That hear. was the objection. <laughs> you use place like twice in a row. It Austin Powers sentence from you, and I just couldn't let it go. Allow myself. <laughs> yes. All right. So we're starting with the 1940 case. 
out of the Southern District of New York. Uh, this decision stems from an FTC case filed in 1921, like I told you about. So this all goes back to 1921. So 1921, the FTC. Fair uh, Trade Commission? Uh, uh, I think so. Please don't. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Not a hot start. But the Trade Commission. Okay. They held Paramount and other defendants. They were basically asking the question, the practices that Paramount and the other biggest studios at the time were involved in, the industry practices that they had, which were basically them producing the films, licensing the films out to studios they either owned or were major partners in, and exhibiting those films only in those studios, were those practices creating a monopoly or tending to create a monopoly within the entertainment industry. So ask yes. another way. <laughs> right. <laughs> See, you could be a judge. <laughs> Put another way. Basically, the question asked was, had the biggest studios made the barrier to entry and competition in the exhibition industry too unfair to anyone to join and compete with them? Yeah. And like you said, All the short yes. answer, obviously, is yes. And the extremely short version of the 1940 decision is that the district court didn't say that the practice of a studio producing content, distributing that content to theaters owned by the production studio, and showing that content in those theaters that were owned by the production studio, or as we'll call it, vertical integration. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about vertical integration plenty of times on the show, so hopefully you guys have a, a kind of grasp on what the idea of vertical integration is. But basically, it's owning all avenues of production and exhibition in terms of a movie right now. It's McDonald's owning the cows, owning right. the restaurants. <laughs> And owning us, basically, because we can't stop going there. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly. That's a great analogy. I'm very proud of integration myself. Is. So in 1940, the court didn't say vertical integration in the entertainment industry violated antitrust law. So they didn't say there was a monopoly yet. But what was decided in that 1940 case was the banning of what had become common business practices among the major studios. There's three uh, main practices that were outlawed via that 1940 decision block booking pre-selling and blind bidding block booking for the purposes of what we're going to talk about today is probably the most important because i think it comes up the most mm -hmm. but essentially what block booking was was the practice of forcing theater owners to buy packages or blocks of movies from a single studio containing mediocre films if those theaters wanted the right to show the best films and today i think you know block booking is done for like a three movie basis for some deals that are out there between ex exhibitioners and and distributors but i think the statute was like no more than five at the end of the day right right Right, they they said they landed on a number of five, and it's interesting because block booking is really commonplace in other industries right now in mm -hmm. 2020. I mean, for those of you that still live in the 90s like me and have cable television, cable TV is block booking. It's sold to you as a block. You can't just pick that you want to watch ESPN or you want to watch the National Geographic channel. You have to buy the packages with other channels in them. That is block booking. If you go see uh, one of your favorite bands at uh, a local venue, if you live in a like some not New York or not some big metropolis area and a big band comes to you. Well, the reason that happens is because a lot of the venues that these bands play at are usually owned by the same company. And so for a big band to play the Chicago's and the New York's, sometimes they have to go also agree to play like Helena, Montana or these lesser sparsely populated areas. That's block booking. I mean, it's, it's a common practice in other industries today, but in 1940, for the purposes of the monopolization of the entertainment and exhibition industry they said no more of that 
They also said no more pre-selling and no more blind bidding, which are less important, but pre-selling is just the collecting of fees for films not yet in production. Yeah, that sounds shady. It's terrible and, because you got to pay in advance for something right. that hasn't even been in production yet, hasn't even been made yet, so basically you're pot committed. That's exactly what it is, and you have no idea the you know what's going on with that movie. It's not even started production. You don't know if the stars are going to get sick. You don't know if the stars are going to stay on, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, also, blind bidding, which is forcing theaters to buy those same packages sight unseen, which is no longer an issue today anyway because everyone has access to seeing what they're actually bidding on in terms of theaters bidding the, for these uh, for the rights to show these movies from different studios anyway. But okay. Those three practices were basically industry standard prior to 1940. They were outlawed by this 1940 decision. And the biggest condition that came out of the ruling in 1940 was, hey, big studios, if you don't abide by this decision, if you don't stop these practices, the court said they will leave open the possibility for this case to be refiled and re-brought to court and re-litigated all over again. So why is this important is, I guess, the overriding question. Why is it so important, in other words? Uh, like, now we have movie theaters that can essentially, they have their the right to curate their own programming after seeing the films. And that's that's a huge distinction, right? Because some mm-hmm. of these were literally have blind in the title of the term, right? So they, they would just be forced to buy things. So right. today, not every movie theater chooses to go in for the rights and petition for the exhibition rights for let's say tenant from wb or any big studio property that is because you know if they run an art house consumers aren't necessarily looking to see tenant in right. a local podunk art house and that's not their that that's not how they're going to make their money i mean there's been some rough exhibition deals in the past for like a star wars uh the the last jedi in particular i think that was one of the notable on a lot of these articles that was one of the notable movies where that had the least favorable deals right so every movie theater doesn't necessarily go in for the rights for every movie and every big movie but whether it's a big movie theater or indie cinema they at least have the freedom to pursue all exhibition rights unlike they did in the 1940s. So exactly the practices of block booking, pre-selling, blind bidding, they can essentially bully a movie theater, any movie theater, whether it's a chain or a small one, they can bully that movie theater into ultimately committing to a, a, a year's worth of programming, if not multiple years. More than worth that. Of- yeah, there was, there was cases where Paramount was trying to lock in theaters to five-year deals of packages of Paramount films only. So that's like prohibitive for many yeah. theaters, especially in smaller markets, to make their bottom line. And it really prohibited many theaters from existing because there was an indie theater boom after these Paramount decrees came into effect after a little bit of a recession in the movie theater industry and they figured it out. But it, it ultimately led to a lot of independently run theaters down the line. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, as far as studios bullying theaters and bullying the industry, well, this was the studio system, right? This was the big, this is the golden age of Hollywood. It's when studios were in control. It's when every actor and writer and director had these long multi-year deals contractually obligating and tying them to a specific studio. It's Think not like of, it was. Uh, sports before free agency. 
Exactly. It's exactly what it was. And we're going to talk about where the free agency for the entertainment industry comes into play because uh, we can talk about some of the fallout from the U.S. v. Paramount Supreme Court of the United States decision, which was ruled on in 1948. So basically, the 1940 decision was made. Paramount and some other big guys tried to make their own look, we don't want to abide by these rules, but here's our rules we will abide by, and we hope that the uh, the attorney general will, will monitor us and let us play by our own rules. It, it wasn't to be this case was relitigated and brought back and made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. So there was a ruling in the Supreme Court case in 1948 that led to the Paramount decrees. But let's talk about some of the fallout from the U.S. v. Paramount first before we get to the decrees specifically. What happened as a result of that 1948 Supreme Court case was they affirmed the 1940 decision, which is basically just a fancy way of saying everything that was decided in 1940. The Supreme Court said, yes, that was proper. You shouldn't do those three things that we talked about. And there was an added directive. The Supreme Court forced studios to divest themselves of theaters they owned. So basically they said, hey, Paramount, you know how you're in the partnership with all these theaters? You know how you own all these special theaters? You can't do that anymore. If you make a movie, you aren't allowed to own a theater anymore going forward. Now, they still had distribution wings of their companies, even though I think there were you know, laws involved that they had to separate from the actual movie studios, etc., etc. We've seen that throughout all recorded time. So they still had distribution wings. But historically, after that long recession, like I said, of the 50s where you know the movie industry was trying to figure itself out and TV really did gain a foothold back when and reduce their yes. viewership, much like it's happening now... Independent cinemas started everywhere and were successful in many places. And what does this do for the industry at large? Well, it makes things more of a meritocracy. Because movie theaters can basically pick and choose what films they're going to exhibit in their theater for the, you know, again, for the most part, because, you know, some deals aren't best for them, uh, you know, the best movies they can't really exhibit because they don't have the technology in their theater, etc., etc. But they have the ability to curate their own programming. So you get the rise of auteur cinema. You mm -hmm. get the expansion of international auteurs coming over. And you get the star system, as you uh, mentioned earlier, and we'll mention again. So Golden Age becomes the star system, and Hollywood changes until we get blockbuster films. But that was a result of the auteur system and Spielberg and Coppola, you know, having the freedom to make the movies they did. That's what brought on the Godfather and Jaws. Yeah. So this brings in the, uh, the free agency system we just teased, right? So the studio system is now basically dead, uh, because they, they are found to have a monopoly and I'll get into that in a second. But like you said, this is now, this is bringing in a, uh, the star system. This is bringing in uh, a free agency where studios have to actually pay money and top dollar to procure the rights of the top stars in the industry and the top directors and the top writers. They're not just contractually obligated to work for one studio. And if you're looking for when Hollywood became this big business, and this influx of people from the business world coming in to run these studios, this would be where you start. Because these studios now have to pay top dollar, they 
need to be run like a business, essentially. Mm-hmm. They need people that know the financial world to come in and help them uh, run these studios to keep them afloat while they're still being able to bring in the top stars. So uh, 48 has some good and some bad as far as the Paramount decision goes. As far as the theaters and the theatrical aspect of this goes, when these Paramount decrees were implemented as a result of this 48 decision, the five biggest studios owned more than 70% of all first-run theaters in the 92 largest U.S. cities. So there was, quite obviously, something wrong going on. I mean, the barrier to compete with any of these studios on either the production or the theatrical exhibition side was just insurmountable. That's like if McDonald's owned the rights to the hamburger. No other (laughs) restaurant back in the day could basically sell a hamburger. And basically, that's without the franchise system that McDonald's has nowadays, because this is basically McDonald's owning your theater, owning your menu, owning everything about your quote unquote McDonald's without giving you a, a larger cut. I mean, it's it's almost like a mafia system where they're your overlord. Exactly. It's a exactly. It's medieval. I mean, it's yep. the, these business practices were just prohibitive, like I said, to all of these ind- independently run theaters, even if it was an independently run chain capitalism anyway <laughs> um so another big big important uh, fallout and a big decision found in the 48 case there was a conspiracy found and this conspiracy was found to be done by these major studios via price fixing domination of first run screenings like i told you about and other aspects of distribution and exhibition arm of the industry to keep the big guys big and keep the independent guys like you said mike out of the game and because vertical integration was found to be the main tool in all these conspiracy sectors working in concert with one another part of the decision in 48 was for the case to be remanded to the lower courts which is basically just a fancy way of saying hey what we're going to decide here at the supreme court level is to say that production studios can't own theaters you guys at the lower court we're going to give you this case back you decide how to keep this conspiracy from happening again and that's pretty much how we've got these paramount decrees from the remanding of this case back to the lower courts yeah it's unbelievable how what they were able to get away with i mean the price fixing aspect of it all the fact that you know in some markets they couldn't handle certain prices and yet they had you know the imperative to to price things the way they did that's a problem and then you had just business models that just couldn't make sense in certain markets so that's why i mean you had underserved markets the world over never mind around the country so here are the paramount decrees and it's a bit misleading because they were actually individual decrees entered into for each individual named defendant in the case but except for a few minor tweaks and changes basically the decrees were all the same and here is a list of limitations that they called for a stop to so these were all business practices that were common before 1948 that the paramount decrees put a stop to and have not been legal or allowed to do under antitrust law uh, for ridicule for fine and for being called running a monopoly up until 10 days ago essentially now uh, that that yeah. being said I, I do need to interject antitrust law in theory or really in practice right is should still be a safety net right mike correct that, i mean antitrust law is basically you can't run a monopoly on any individual industry in this country so they basically used antitrust law in order to enforce and essentially litigate these practices out of the industry. But antitrust law should have been the reason for why they were illegal to begin with, correct? Uh, man, that's... Uh, y- yes, 
except that they weren't because there was nothing specifically like the only thing under antitrust law that was found to be illegal was the fact that they were running a monopoly. So these individual practices weren't illegal per se or on their face. They weren't illegal just because they were happening until these decrees were put in place and made them illegal. There would have to be litigation to be brought in front of a judge to have a judge say, yes, these are illegal. Now, that's an alarming uh, fact about these particular practices, right? These horrible mafia-like bullying practices that you're about to mention, because by taking this case away and the precedent of it away and reversing it, essentially, right, you can take some of the the reasoning behind behind outlawing all these mm-hmm. practices, and I wonder if you studied the broader landscape, if other antitrust cases you can you know find the precedent you need to continue to outlaw these particular practices or are we opening up pandora's box is what i'm is ultimately a burning question going into this i'm sorry to bring it up now but i think it's got to be said uh i would my answer would be it would uh not with the supreme court probably not uh, <laughs> but that's a different political discussion for a different day all right So let's talk about the limitations that were put in place. We already talked about the vestiture, which was the Supreme Court ruling. Here's what the lower court on remand said of the common business practices, which were now outlawed going forward. Resale price maintenance, which is basically a fancy way of saying studios could not demand that theaters charge a certain price for their films. Unreasonable clearances, which is a fancy way of saying studios couldn't refuse a license to a nearby theater in the same vicinity of somebody they had already given a license to show their film to in the hopes of increasing traffic to one licensee over another. So in other words, WB couldn't license Tenant to a New York City theater and refuse to do so to any theater in Connecticut on the basis of saying, hey, all people in Connecticut have to do is go 90 minutes into the city to see Tenant. So this is a mafia organization because if Joey's Grocery, if Joey's Grocery pays tribute and follows all the rules, then Joey's Grocery can continue to exist and get product from the suppliers. But if uh, Randy's Grocery uh, down the you know around the block, I mean if they don't follow the uh, overlord's rules, then they could be blackballed essentially and be and product could be withheld from them. Right. I mean, yes. It's 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 very. Uh, uh, mafioso in its structure I agree as far as the clearances part goes you are allowed to do clearances in general there was a famous case in Connecticut where there were two theaters nine miles apart from one another and one theater tried saying hey theater B keeps getting all these uh, great titles and it's a barrier to entry if I can't show the same titles that theater B gets because they those two theaters are so close and are in competition with one another yes then of course the the studio could say we're only giving the license to theater B and not theater A but they couldn't say we're only giving the license to Manhattan theaters and no theater in Connecticut that's okay. what unreasonable clearance is. All right. Well, my example doesn't work as well. Then it's still kind of mafioso. Like it's I mean, still ma- yes, it's it's not absolutely is. All right. Whoops. <laughs> Black booking is another thing. We already talked about that. If you want tenant, you're going to have to also agree to show every other WB film we're putting out in 2020. That's done away with for good now. And circuit dealing, a practice by which studios continually exclude one theater from showing their films in favor of another. So basically the studios couldn't say we're always going to go with the multiplex and give our license to the multiplex as opposed to the mom and pop art house shop because the multiplex is going to give us more money. That is practices outlawed now as well. So Golden Age Hollywood held movie theaters hostage. 
I mean, if you were a small business that you had to eke out a measly yes. profit uh, un- unless you were partnered up with the studios yeah. as overlords. You're absolutely right. And, I mean, the, th- the studios owned everything in the 30s and 40s. They were all owned and partnered. The biggest, theater- the biggest theaters in the biggest cities were all owned and partnered by the biggest studios anyway. So the decrees were certainly nece- necessary to do back then. I mean, there was clearly a monopoly and actually... The reason that the court was so confident in saying there was a monopoly is because they basically had studio heads testifying that there was this conspiracy going on. Mm-hmm. So it made their job even easier, which is wild and certainly wouldn't happen with all the uh, legalese and doublespeak that happens in 2020 now. And you also have to understand back then, too, I mean, the studios that owned these theaters, they also they had the highest priced films. They had the, all the money. They could build the most impressive theaters. They could afford the highest priced amenities like air conditioning to allure even more customers into their theaters. So they were in charge of the product, the license, the licensee, the pricing, the barrier to entry. They were in charge of all of it. Money is power. It's that right. simple, right? <laughs> Especially in business. I mean, if you have capital to improve your product, you're going to be able to sell more product and you're going to be able to sell it at prices where you make the most money. Uh, or prices that just box out the competitors. You can go like Walmart and go lower pricing in certain markets. So it's just, it's a major issue. Capitalism. Yeah. (laughs) It's a a running theme that I will talk about probably until I'm on my deathbed, which knowing my immune system could be any day now. All right. So we're finally at present day. We're talking about those are the paramount decrees. They went into effect in 1948. They pretty much ruled the theater industry until about 11 days ago as we record this. There was a warning shot fired by the Trump administration in April of 2018. The Trump administration came out and said, look, we're going to be looking into these nearly 1,300, as they called them, legacy antitrust judgments. And basically what that means is any judgment, any antitrust judgment that's been in effect and ruled for over a decade, we're going to look at them and seek to terminate them. I thought about making that alarm sound that's going to tell you that I'm adding something in while in the editing process, the people's court theme, but I, I, I just didn't. So it's just going to bump, 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 That's your alarm sound. Uh, listen, one of the reasons the Department of Justice decided to review the Paramount decision, these 1,300 other legacy antitrust judgments, I meant to bring it up and it's even cited in the decision, but I never do. So I wanted to just edit it in here. The Department of Justice, it's not a Trump thing, it's not Obama thing, it's not an anything thing. Since 1979, the Department of Justice and their antitrust division has operated under a, uh, a scheme where every antitrust judgment carries a sunset period of 10 years. Now, what that means is that from 1979, the, the Department of Justice decided that every antitrust ruling would pretty much wrap itself up and pee off the books after a 10-year period. So that's why any judgment that was pre-1979 that was going on for longer than 10 years, they decided to take a look at in 2018. They announced they were going to do so because it was basically like you were operating under two different systems uh, of antitrust. One with judgments pre-1979 that could have been on the books for, in this case, 80 years, 70, 80 years, and others since 1979 that were demanded to be on the books no more than 10 years. So with any judgment in the antitrust world that was going on beyond 10 years, pre-1979 that's what they were looking at and those were those legacy antitrust judgments i meant to bring it up it's an important factor of this it's one of the factors in that fourth point that the court repealed the decrees under which you will hear us talking about coming up but just wanted to slide that in there and get it on the record and now mike will go back and tell you more about why uh, the trump administration isn't to blame for reviewing these judgments 
right now. And look, we're not talking about this because of our politics necessarily, but we have to mention the politics because Republicans are notoriously anti-regulation. It's the way they want to do business. I don't think that is, you know, slander against them. They, They like certain regulations, but therefore freer markets and therefore less regulation upon large companies and, and in our case, you know, the conglomerates that could jump into the fray now. Yeah, for once in this podcast history, I'm going to bring up Trump's name without being derogatory. So set your recordings. <laughs> Record the recording. <laughs> all right. So once again, we're back to the Southern District of New York and their ruling on August 7th of 2020 by Judge Annalisa Torres, who wrote the opinion terminating the Paramount decrees. And like we said, I spent my Sunday and Monday parsing through this 17-page decision. Let's dive into it and let's talk about it. SDNY, I'll refer to the court, Judge Torres, SDNY, the Southern District of New York. That's all the same governing body when I talk about who wrote this opinion. So the federal court of SDNY decided that the termination of the Paramount decrees would be in the public interest for four reasons. One, they achieved SCOTUS's goal in 1948 of uprooting and ending the studio's conspiracy, and thus the decrees have overserved the public's interest. Two, industry changes have made it unlikely that big studios could or would attempt such a conspiracy again. Three, antitrust case law has evolved to undermine the regulatory provisions of these decrees. And four, the defendants are still under provision of and subject to antitrust law. Do you got all that? No? Good, you shouldn't. That's the only reason lawyers are actually in industry is because they like using fancy words that only they understand. So let's break them down into layman's terms. Yeah, you skipped like 17 pages, and I, I don't even know how you did that. Did you have multiple versions of the doc open? No, we're going we're going back through it. I was just scrolling down. So let's start with reason number one, which is the cried. easy. I almost cried. I almost cried. You're not supposed to jump around in the doc when you're speaking lawyer language. I'm sorry. I, I my my sincerest apologies. I'll make it up for you by trying to be uh, right. by trying to be plain language from now on. So let's talk about the first reason, which is the easiest to understand and grasp, and pretty much speaks for itself. The court said the Supreme Court's goal in 1948 of undoing this monopoly mm-hmm. and ending these big studios conspiracy was accomplished by these decrees, and thus. These decrees have overserved the public's interests. And they say that the the market long ago has readjusted back to an unmonopolized time, which is, you know, at least true as far as the theatrical exhibition arm of entertainment goes, I guess. And that is true because they are a bit symbiotic with one mm-hmm. another, to use one of my own big words, which is just trying to compensate for my, <laughs> you know, terrified lack of an understanding of some of your big words. But I do think, I do think movie theaters need studios, studios need movie theaters still. That's changing quite a bit rapidly in the last few months, mm-hmm. but they still need each other. Uh, in a symbiotic way. And we just talked about the other day, right? AMC is the biggest chain in America and they only own, what, 25% of the screens. And I'm so so happy, by the way, because all of the trades over the last week, they've basically been coming to the same conclusions we did when we did our AMC Universal uh, episode two weeks ago. So that's that's a vote of confidence for us. In this episode, uh, I need to bring it up because I'm very insecure about judging... (laughs) 
over you know arching big business especially at this industry level so i have to pat ourselves on the back for that are we the greatest in the podcast space at doing this that's not for us to say but we need yes. bravado yes, now we are. more than ever yes <laughs> so basically like i said uh the the first reason was they were saying was look the monopoly existed back in 1948 it doesn't exist anymore as far as studios owning theaters it hasn't existed for the past 80 years so we don't need these rules these decrees in place anymore and look even if these decrees were to be stripped away the industry has evolved enough where it would be difficult for a studio to have a monopoly like that what like was the case with paramount back in the 1940s and you may be asking yourself wait a minute aren't industry changes its own rule isn't that the second reason you just read off a while ago mike one and my answer to that would be yes and congratulations you've just experienced your first frustration about litigation redundancy so all right we just had a pandemic we're still in a pandemic (laughs) we haven't had a pandemic since 1918 the administration that's currently in power basically nullified the pandemic response team heading into its uh, tenure. I'm trying so hard. (laughs) Is this also that, or is this more of something where there are other pandemic response teams already in place? Because I think that's an important, it's an important distinction to make here, Mike. Are there other safeguards Involved. I'm asking this question for, for the second time because I still don't get what you're saying. I know you, you're saying that it, there's a there's another safeguard in that you can sue them for doing wrong again based on antitrust law. But mm-hmm. are there other safeguards involved regarding this, you know, potential monopolization? If let's say uh, a huge company wanted to try and just uh, bring the film industry to its knees because it's vulnerable right now. That's a loaded question, and that's basically the fourth reason. And we can jump down there because one and four are very quick. Mm-hmm. Um, number one was these th- these decrees had served their purpose. There's no monopolies. There hasn't been for 80 years, and the industry's changed enough where it'd be tough to have a monopoly. Reason number four that these decrees were stripped away was, look, even if some bad actor did successfully want to redo this conspiracy and this monopoly, the court one has antitrust law in place mm-hmm. where they can seek out a monopoly and two they always could look to these decrees that did stay in place for 80 years they could always reinstate them they could always refer to them it's not just a free for all but to get to the point where they these decrees would be reinstated would take a plaintiff with a lot of money and deep pockets and a lot of time uh, to go after, to to basically appeal to the United States to retake this case up. So not AMC. <laughs> right, yeah, no, it, well, yeah, no, not but, AMC. <laughs> but worse than that, not an independently run theater. Like, let's say an independently run theater is getting screwed by this t- five years down the line. They're not going to have the money and power to speak up against this? It, <laughs> that's a that's a great fear of of NATO. that should be a great fear of NATO. Never mind all independent theaters, but that, that, I don't know. Yeah, I, and that that goes back to I mean the the hope is it never has to get to a court, right? The hope is that, like you said, that symbiotic relationship, which wasn't I mean it wasn't symbiotic in the forties. It was studios ran the world. Mm-hmm. Now studios are more reliant on theaters since the theaters have had eighty years of independence. So the hope would be that because those two sides do need each other, especially when it comes to blockbusters. Uh, 
it would never get to the point of litigation again. It would never get to the point where somebody could be in a situation where one company could be in a situation to own all these theaters and bully all the little studios or vice versa. Mm, okay. I, I'm, I, I'm starting to feel a little more relaxed, but my butt is still clenched. It, <laughs> okay. just, it, it won't unclench yet. Yeah. See, you're getting to be a lawyer here. <laughs> That's the feeling. It's just perpetual constipation. Anyway, (laughs) we did reason number one. We did reason number four. Let's talk about reason number two, that it's in the public interest for these decrees to be done away with, according to the Southern District of New York. And that is industry changes have made it unlikely that big studios could or would attempt such a conspiracy again. All right. Now, I want to push back on that a little bit because of how the watch at home experience is evolving so quickly and therefore movie theaters in their exclusivity and how they're going to make their money, they're dependent on technological innovation. We've seen this with AMC basically saying, we have to make leather seats in all our theaters. We have to make this a luxury experience. We're going to over leverage ourselves to do the Dolby cinemas and, and spend all this money on Dolby cinemas and, and 3D and IMAX. So we've been seeing the industry and the movie theaters go this way for a while, Mike, because you know what you can do with your home movie theater. It used to be in the 1990s, never mind the, the 80s and 70s. In the 1990s, at best, we all remember our childhood TVs. They were a box, and most likely it was a small box in the corner of your living room. You were not getting a theatrical experience out of that tiny box, especially if you had to move the antenna around like we did back in our old, old school days. I now, had a tiny box in the corner yeah. of my living room until 2007. Exactly. Especially if you had old school parents. So nowadays you can get a flat screen TV with beautiful, precise uh, visuals. You can get uh, upgraded sound. You can do all that for a couple thousand and make your home viewing experience wonderful. And that's just for most people. You could still soup it all up. And give yourself the 3D experience. You can make it a huge projection. I mean, we have seen film Twitter go crazy about their home viewing experiences and how movie-like, how cinema-like they are nowadays. So I don't think the world is over the cinematic experience. I just think they brought the cinematic experience into their living rooms over the last few decades. And now movie theaters have to compete with that. They have to make it. They have to go above and beyond to make their movie theater experience. So much better than that. To make matters worse, and here's where the pushback comes in, streamers like Netflix, Disney+, Plus, they're not selling movies a la carte for the most part. And a la carte it means individually, right? Again, I'm overcompensating with my own big words based on a sushi menu. I was going to say restaurant terminology. <laughs> if you're buying movies uh, and watching them at home, your typical the typical way you're doing that is from like Netflix and Netflix has more movies you can ever watch on their streaming service. So they are the Walmart of the industry right now because you're getting such a cheap package deal. Never mind Disney Plus, HBO Max, etc. with all their libraries. You're getting it for so cheap that it's really hurting the movie industry. So to bring this full circle, yes, industry changes have made it unlikely that big studios would attempt. But what if Big studios are desperate for a conspiracy just to stay alive because fast forward seven years, they can't compete in these streaming wars. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something, and the at-home experience is actually something that the court, we're going to touch on, the court actually brings it up in their uh, 
their opinion or their their decision, I should say. Um, and it's it's certainly a concern, and it's definitely the at home experience, the watching experience in general has certainly changed. The theatrical experience has changed, maybe not as much, but there's no doubt that just apples to apples compared to what was going on in the 40s. I mean, multiplexes weren't even around until the mid 60s, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we're talking about a time here where at home viewing wasn't even a thought when the, uh, you know, these decrees don't have come close to covering it. And you're kind of making the case now as to why these decrees. They feel, the court feels these decrees are, are toothless. They're not really enforcing anything, at least in part. And it's in part because of uh, a, a change in the at-home viewing experience like you were just talking about. So, yeah, the industry has changed in a variety of ways, not just having to do with sitting in a movie theater itself, but having to do with watching movies in general. Obviously, that's true. And I would think any 80-year time frame... You, you have to change. You have to innovate and adapt or die and perish. And maybe movie theaters are going the way of needing to conspire at some point like you were talking about. And that's certainly something we will uh, we'll dive into in a little bit. But the, let's talk about. Well, here's the scary thing, though, Mike, because yep. we've seen what AMC. I mean, we've followed it, you know, blow by blow. How AMC is dealing with the pandemic. I mean, we've seen them over leverage themselves by trying to technologically innovate their theaters to have a superior theatrical movie going experience, not only superior to other movie theaters, but superior to your watch at home experience. Just like, you know, the luxury suites at a baseball game is needs to be better than your at home viewing experience of a baseball game. Otherwise, mm -hmm. people will just stay home and watch baseball games and their surround sound and, you know, with their uh, big screen TVs. So this has already happened with AMC. And what did AMC just do? They just got bullied into this horrible business deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's, I'm it's calling a red flag. Well, it's. It's bleak for theaters in general. I don't know that it's bleak because of, of Paramount decrees. I don't know if, if the stripping of these decrees are going to make it any more bleak. I'm in the minority in that opinion, and, and I'm going to talk about why at the very end of this. But So I play devil's advocate is basically what happened, and you're going to assure me and tuck me to, into bed at night before the end of this episode. I don't think I'm going to assure you because I think there is a lot of danger in the theatrical experience. I just don't think it's going to come from the studios. Okay. It's yeah. kind of where I land on it. All right. That's that's a scary thing because now I'm remembering <laughs> our pre-show conversation. All right. right. Keep going, Michael. Please tell me where in the doc you are. So uh, we're, we're at number two. We're going to talk about industry innovations as the court sees them as to why it's in the public good for these decrees to be rolled back okay. and for studios to maybe start owning theaters again at some point. And because of the 48 decisions splitting into separate entities, distributors and theater owners, no studio owns any major percentage of movie theaters nationwide. They call it in the decision an appreciable percentage, which is very, very interesting to me because this is in the Southern District of New York. We know Netflix just bought a theater in New York. This tells me, reading between the lines, that the Fed is very aware that Netflix has been buying theaters and owns theaters. And also, you could make the argument that this is the court calling Netflix a major studio. Right. Uh, they go more into Netflix. They speak blatantly and explicitly about Netflix in a little bit as well. But reading in between the lines here, saying that no studio owns an appreciable percentage, that means they're willing to admit that there are studios out there that do own theaters that they are aware of. And Netflix, obviously, is the biggest studio 
owning theaters that we comment on. I don't know that there's a major studio right now that owns any theater that we are aware of, specifically because of these decrees. Part of the reason these decrees have been rolled back and they're being sold as useless anymore is because Netflix has kind of circumvented them in buying these theaters. So a couple things. Number one, Netflix is obviously not uh, subject to these decrees like a lot of modern movie studios are not subject to these former decrees, right? It's just, you know, they could be pressured to doing business the same way everybody else does business or get blackballed. But again, we've seen that push and pull with Netflix and the movie industry in the past, and we've analyzed it in the past, especially with the Oscars. So number two is that Netflix according to you know their pr people and according to their ceo and according to everything you read in the trades netflix has no desire to get into the exhibition business on a, th- on a theatrical level. And I kind of believe them because of how they have thwarted or tried to get past or avoid a shoe. Again, I'm trying to use big words to overcompensate, <laughs> not feeling very confident right now, but Netflix has tried to avoid movie theaters with every single you know, fight that they've had with the industry up till now because they are all about getting that subscription free for Netflix. I mean, that's their bottom line. That's how they're going to make money. That's how they're going to fund their programming, correct? Yeah, I I would agree with you. And I don't, I I mean, unless Netflix becomes the Amazon type conglomerate, if Netflix is going to rely on movies for their bread and butter, I would think they're going to make, they'd have to know subscription is the way of the future and they are the future. So they're they're not going to go backwards to to go back into theaters. I, I can't imagine that. They're buying movie theaters as prestige uh, theaters where they could exhibit a single premiere right. or basically just meet a base level requirement, a bare minimum requirement for theatrical exhibition in New York and in L.A. for some of their movies and still be eligible for Oscars. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's we've talked about it ad nauseum and that's pretty much the conclusion we come to every time. So I would imagine that to be the case. And I would think if you pull Ted Sarandos's twisted his arm, he would tell you that they have no business and no interest in becoming the studio conglomerate. And again, this is all part of the reason that these decrees seem to be. I mean, the biggest, baddest guys out there right now may not want to buy, go buying up theaters. And the reason, part of the reason is maybe the theatrical experience is dying. And that's kind of a running theme of all of this that you've already hinted at. Uh, and we, we're going to talk more about. Yeah, I'm, I'm not necessarily uh, such a, a apocalyptic thinker. In that regard, I understand that viewership has gone down in this country, but viewership the world over has gone up, Mm -hmm. and viewership on streaming for movies has just skyrocketed. So I think people are more movie crazy than ever. It's just a question of, like you said, where are they going to watch these movies? So Mm -hmm. there's a way to make this business model work again. And and it's not broken necessarily because blockbuster movie going is still making the billions, whereas selling watch-at-home stuff is making millions on on an a la carte basis. And in in other words, you can make $100 million or $400 million, whatever it was for Trolls World 2 or whatever that topped out at, but you're making two billion for Avengers Endgame, almost three billion, right? 
Right, and I mean the the way that we show movies in general, not only having to do with at home stuff, which the court actually mentions in this section as well, but first run, the idea of first run has completely changed. It's now single run in theaters. The idea of movie houses in general and theaters have changed. There's no, there's not very many single screen theaters, or at least that's not where the majority of people go to the theaters to see. So everything about the movie watching experience has changed. I think we can agree with that. And that's, right. You've been pitching it for for a while now, and that's the court is absolutely in step with you, and they're agreeing. And they even go on to say that the competitors have changed, too. And this is also where they go to talk about Netflix. At this point, they had already hinted at Netflix. They already mentioned Netflix as being a a studio that was planning to release over 50 films in a single year on home in another way that the industry has changed. And now they're saying that some of the cited defendants like RKO Studios, a number of other theater owning companies created as a result of the divestiture and major studios that do exist are now usually in the market of only releasing mega movies, which are spaced out extensively. They name drop MGM here and cite how MGM released 52 films in 1939 alone but a grand total of only three in 2018 total and that's probably because of so many film sets from hell I, we, we need like a uh, a goofy ass music or something when i say something like that and just blatantly blatantly promote a previous episode but yeah they've had a lot of flops in their history mgm and they've uh, you know they've had some struggles so they've definitely streamlined their business over the years right and that's a major point in the direction of block booking not being that much of a concern anymore either and how 2020 has kind of taken block booking off the table because major studios seem to only release so many films in a year and they're not churning them out at a breakneck pace like they were in the 30s but the irony of this decision Mm-hmm. which coming from SDNY, which is arguably the most influential district court in the nation, hinting at Netflix's power as a major studio, like we talked about, then outright claiming Netflix's 50-plus same single-year film releases on their streaming service are an example as to why the business practice of theatrical reliance has changed for studios. Then claiming, essentially, that, look, major studios don't release 50-plus films a year like they used to. There's nothing to worry about with block booking anymore. Like, I understand the argument being made is different as one relies on licensing your films to be shown in theaters and the other involves owning your own streaming service. And I understand the reality is that the state of independent studios is stronger now than it was back then. But still, to me, it's wild that the court would cite Netflix so many times in so many ways when clearly they are exactly the type of industry-encompassing presence that these decrees were put in place to prevent against, kind of like you talked about already. But... Mm -hmm whatever that's what they did they didn't have to bring up netflix at all they chose to of their own accord and they're making basically the case that netflix is the big bad in the industry and then saying there's no more big bads to worry about but again maybe the unwritten rule is what we talked about already that netflix shouldn't be interested in buying theaters to me it's just interesting that it's obvious we aren't free of like conglomerate rule conglomerates exist in this society and i i just think that's a little unique and a little odd but the court is essentially saying that a monopoly the the way it used to happen it can't happen in today's industry it won't happen in today's industry they're explicitly stating that it, it's not going to happen and then, and that's in the letter of uh the court's decision correct Right. So at least there's precedent to go back okay, at to. Le- at least it's it's very unlikely is basically what they keep saying. So they're saying it's very unlikely, but there's loopholes and possibilities for these giant conglomerates with all the power in the world to get, you know, 
bend things to their whim at the end of the day. And maybe Netflix is not going to do a heel turn, but others could? Can I no, tease it's not that? Like, it's not like giant corporations to bend the rules for their own advantage, is it? <laughs> I just want my movies. I just want them in the theater. I just don't I don't want to have to see Artemis Fowl because Artemis Fowl is the only movie playing oh, in the theater Mike. because of block booking. What a, a transition. What a transition by you because the last thought, uh, speaking of Artemis Fowl, was the court cites that Look, the industry has changed so much that other mega distributors have entered the market since the 40s, even though they weren't subject to the decrees, Mm -hmm. which is just nonsense because the decrees have ruled the industry that every studio in the industry has abided by them because the decrees, much like many rulings in antitrust law, have been, and the court will call them this, a yardstick of which to measure an entity against the industry for. So, like, saying that, look, you weren't named in the decree, so it doesn't apply to you, it's going to come into play in a little bit as well, but it's asinine for this to be an actual reasoning by the court as to how the industry's changed. The more I look at this, uh, you know, I've been torn. Going into this episode, I've been torn. Is this just a political stunt, you know, to kind of disarm the overriding case for more regulation and and bigger government? And this is a politicized stunt, essentially. Or is this big conglomerates, you know, name them. I don't want to name them at this moment. (laughs) Is this big conglomerates pushing for this? Because they ultimately believe that vertical integration affects their bottom line, that they need to not only have distribution, and it may may not be a, a movie studio in particular, but let's just say Amazon. Okay, I mentioned them. Amazon, <laughs> they're big enough to necessarily have a dis- distribution wing, which they do. Mm-hmm. They have a streaming service, but let's say Amazon wanted to buy AMC. Okay, now they're vertically integrated. Will they bankroll AMC to having the best theaters in the world to the point where all of us will be happy? Maybe. Or will they just do the bare minimum to make the theaters slightly better and compete and basically do the Walmart of movie theaters? And I don't know what the the end result of all that is. I'm I'm just afraid at the end of the day. It's a legitimate concern. It's a wise concern. But neither of those options are good by taking away this kind of... I don't know even if it's not a safety net even well that's the, that's the argument holds. that's the argument right so part of the reasoning they're taking away the decrees is because the court is saying that look antitrust law has evolved and this is the final segment we're going to get into but antitrust law has evolved the industry has evolved these decrees aren't necessary the argument against taking them away is wait a minute these decrees have been in place for 80 years and these monopolies haven't existed why bother taking them away if they're doing their job right and that's the other i mean that's there's two sides to every argument that's the other side of the argument why bother taking these away why would you touch them if you've gotten the desired result anyway I don't know, and I want you to know. Are you going to know? <laughs> well, yeah, the answer to that is, like you mentioned already, we have a, a Republican Department of Justice right now who doesn't like oversight and doesn't like longstanding government uh, regulation. That's, the, right. that's not me politicizing the issue. That's right. That's the answer. And to be honest, we've seen it in the trades. We've read it in the trades the last two weeks that basically this is as much of a symbolic maneuver as anything else, correct? We hope, we think. Uh, yeah, I think, well, yes and no. I mean, that's a, again, it's a loaded question. I, I, I don't, I don't know if it's symbolic. I think it 
could have serious consequences. I don't think it's the death knell that everyone thinks it is, though. But it needs a domino effect in order to have serious consequences. Right. Like, the corruption's got to run rampant, you right. know, from I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's just like, you know, studios are going to be off and running and there's just going to be a giant corruption because right. of, I don't think but that's the case. And a lot of people just, have said that. They didn't take the rule off and everybody's like, Wee! Right. I don't, yeah, I don't see that happening. Again, know, what I think break. happens, what I think happens is I think there's an outside entity and it could be an Amazon like you talk about that, that, makes a big play here i don't think there's a movie studio and amazon is not a movie studio let's be honest i don't think there's a movie studio that's going to benefit greatly and immediately enter the corruption game like in the 40s okay that's that's good to hear anyway proceed please counselor so the final the final reason the court cites as to why these decrees can be taken away was antitrust case law has evolved to undermine the regulatory provisions of this decree this is the most legal intensive reason uh and we can talk about them here now yes antitrust law is still the catch-all when it comes to monopolization and conspiracies for monopolization but the decrees deemed certain things illegal and a violation of antitrust law this is the court saying this they deemed certain things a violation of antitrust law under a per se standard of review that law since has treated as allowable at times when analyzed under a less stringent rule of reason standard of review. And the example given of this is vertical integration was an unfair practice in the 1940s just by its existence, according to the court. So basically, if you were vertically integrated in the entertainment industry, that wasn't allowed just by its pure existence uh, because, you know, there was a different economic time. The industry was completely different, et cetera, et cetera. SCOTUS has since specifically cited vertical, vertical integration as a mechanism to keep costs low to consumers in other industries. So this is just a big, complicated legalese way of saying, basically, in today's marketplace in 2020, vertical integration isn't considered the evil it once was, and in actuality may provide a greater benefit to the consumer than it does a detriment to other competitors in the marketplace. It would depend on the facts and context, but those facts and context under a per se standard of review they would never even be looked at if these decrees are in place so you can't judge whether or not a studio vertically integrating actually provides a greater benefit to the consumer than it does a detriment to the industry at large if these decrees are in place at least these decrees being stripped will allow you to examine the facts and context with which a studio is vertically integrated and if it is corrupt then the court which is where the antitrust law being the backing of all this and the catch-all then the court can say it's still a monopoly but at least now they have a chance to say no this is the benefit we're providing consumers by vertically integrating hopefully <laughs> oh yes well listen all of this the hopefully and theoretically and reasonably these are words that lawyers live and die by <laughs> so we went into today's discussion where i thought you were going to be the worry wart but i'm actually the worry wart and maybe i shouldn't be but it kind of played better i think look bottom line is we've had guests on our show from the trades from the major hollywood trades who on on their own podcasts have been rooting for vertical integration in the industry. And I think a main reason for that is that they have seen the writing on the wall. They have seen the movie theater business struggling and needing to differentiate itself from the watch at home experience. And, and it's a drum I keep beating in this episode. In other words, they believe that with vertical integration, if they're bankrolled, if AMC is bankrolled by a larger corporation, 
especially a corporation with a vested interest in making this industry hum, making it work, making it make continue to make the billions that it's making, if not more, year-round worldwide. If we have them bankrolled, AMC or any movie theater, then they can put out a better product for the consumer, a better price for the consumer, and a, a better movie theater, essentially, right? Yeah, and, and it doesn't even have to be as grand, it doesn't even have to be as grand a scale as AMC. It could be, you know, Universal buying a bunch of art house uh, theaters and just sprucing them up and actually putting money into them, as opposed to how they're independently owned and struggling to survive. You know, and yes, you probably end up paying a higher ticket price, but you could actually, you know, get a get a Starbucks in one of your art house theaters. And I know people that are anti corporation that that's kills them to hear but you know that type of thing it could be an artisanal coffee house within your art house theater as well i mean then again mike you know it could be a lower price at the end of the day because what are they competing with they're competing with these bundles of movies available for you know watch at home what they really need to do is lower the price which is essentially what movie pass did make it a subscription service you know, to go to the movies where people were basically like you and me spending $2 on movie tickets a piece mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we were going to so many movies and we were and, able to bring the price down. And maybe this calms some of your concerns, too, because another way that antitrust law has evolved and what the court comments on next is that there are safeguards in place now that mandate an opportunity for investigation by antitrust authorities for significant mergers and acquisitions. And the biggest theater chains are so big and the studios who would acquire such a chain would by their nature themselves be so large that such safeguards would be enacted and thus there would still be requisite oversight. So there's a law on the books. It's called the Hart Scott Rodino Antitrust Improvement Act of 1976, the HSR Act that the court cites. If a merger happens with significant assets at stake and significant assets in that case are over $90 million worth of assets, it automatically triggers an opportunity for government officials, antitrust officials, to go in and look over everything to make sure it is not creating a monopoly. That was obviously not in place in the 30s and 40s. Okay, so that's all that's good. Yes, yes. I mean, it's an opportunity. It's up to the government to actually enact the actual review and say they want to do it. And we know that some government officials are in the pocket of big business, so who knows what wheels have to be greased behind the scenes. And this is all the corruption talk that you're worrying about happening behind right. the scenes that I'm bringing to the forefront and hoping to make you worried about right now. It's an argument of degree. It's not a good and bad argument. It's not a good guy, bad guy's argument. I mean, we're essentially subject to human nature here, and capitalism is always dancing, that dance of the dead of human nature. Remember the dance at the end of the seventh seal? That dance. (laughs) That dance with all those metaphors in place and all those conflicting metaphors. But bottom line is, you know, this has always been the case. Like, if people want to be corrupt in a capitalistic society and you don't have all of the checks and balances in place, then yeah, if the corruption is strong enough, they can be corrupt and hopefully a check or a balance, you know, actually checks them in the end. This is not the end of this story is what I'm trying to say. Right. Nor is it the great evil that it's been portrayed as in some of uh, the media, nor is it the great good as it's been portrayed as as, as in other parts. I mean, it is a complex issue as the bottom line. I think we could have, you know, taken the easy route and and made a uh, polarized decision today or even a, um, what's the word for fucking... Stubborn? Not stubborn, uh, partisan. We We could have taken the partisan route. But here we are, two Democrats, two, you know, blue bloods, saying that this might not be the worst thing in the world for the industry. 
It is what it is, but it might Michelle be. Obama would say. Uh, but it yeah. might be. <laughs> right. Well, it might be. And all I mean, here's another of everything that I can worry about, and I've been pretty calm, and you're right, and there I, I don't think it's as much reason to worry as everyone thinks. And I've said that, and I will keep saying that. But here's what I do worry about, and it's this part, this part that came up next. The court said that block booking, circuit dealing, and resale price management would necessitate a different standard of review in 2020 than the per se, which again means just by their existence, they are illegal and subject to right. fine, uh, than the, the per se standard of review they had in the 40s. This, to me, is the biggest cause for concern. Because, for example... The hypothetical I pitched before, now WB could, in fact, just license tenant to a theater in New York and avoid Connecticut altogether, and it wouldn't just on its face by its existence be a violation of antitrust law anymore. And this is goes back to what we were talking about. Now it's not just illegal because it happens. Now you would have to get it to a court and litigate it and relitigate it and ask a court to decide that it is an antitrust violation, as opposed to its mere existence being an antitrust violation. So... Look, would WB only sell its the only sell its movies to a theater in New York and not Connecticut? No, because it would hurt its profits. But what WB could do is only sell to like New York and then ask Connecticut to jack up their prices to meet New York prices and say I can't give you tenant if you're not agreeing to sell to seat people for like $25 a seat like is happening in the the heart of Manhattan. Okay. So now your example doesn't really go with, you know, where the business wins need to go right because tenant wouldn't i mean they want to open in connecticut they want to open in right. new york they want to open every single theater they possibly could to make the most money they could so that's not necessarily a worry but i i understand your example but my other point is this i am wondering if the industry at large and especially the industry attorneys they have noticed people bending the rules and it's not just netflix obviously we mentioned netflix before netflix has been able to skirt some of their rules because of how powerful they have become i'm wondering with you here michael Mm -hmm. does the fact that these paramount decrees go away does it reinvigorate everybody's or change everybody's attention to all these bending of the rules like basically if it wasn't per se like you're like you're talking about because the paramount decrees are gone and and it's not per se anymore are we going to take a closer look at all of these other bending of the former rules and basically you know look at them as wait a minute let's let's just just because I understand. I understand the point you're making. And the bottom answer- line is because they didn't break the, par- the right. Paramount decrees, they got away with it right. scot free. Right. right. Netflix got away with it scot free because they didn't break the Paramount decrees because the Paramount decrees were assumed to be the the law of the land. Now that the law of the land is changed and it's supposed to fall back on a principle, an antitrust law principle, right? Now that that's there, now we can question more of these quote unquote bending of the rules. Right. And the answer to that is ideally sure um again you would need a justice department that cares enough Mm -hmm. to look into this or you would need enough of a groundswell of support to ask the justice department to look into that and bring that to uh uh, district courts uh notice so So it it wouldn't be easy to do well it just comes back to the fact that this is a liberal industry and this is a large government industry, and this is an industry that has had a lot of checks and balances within it, and they have a symbiotic relationship for the two of the biggest branches in that industry, all right? Mm-hmm. It's not just this one ring rules them all 
kind of industry anymore. It's not it's not this republican capitalistic industry that it used to be. It's much it's much different. So you have a lot of forces and you have a lot of powerful people in this industry that I would hope take advantage of this antitrust law backing as a broader way to question the industry practices is what I'm trying to get at. Uh, yeah, I, I I understand and I, I mean it's it's it again to get to the point where any of this is put under a microscope like these paramount decrees were yeah. you have to take yeah somebody in power has to take notice and has to care enough to do it because it costs time and money and research and all that jazz so uh, yeah ideally this would be a perfect industry no every every loophole would be closed and every law would be stringently followed we know that's not going to be the case and we know there's going to be corporations that try to take advantage of it I mean, there's corporations that try to take advantage of the rules in everyday life. Are they put under a microscope? No. I mean, it takes a lot for any corporation to have their feet held to the fire. And that's the downside of this. And that's the downside of capitalism, quite frankly. All right. But I don't know. My hope is still there is what I'm trying to say. Because, again, I do think this industry has conducted itself, and at least in a broader sense, along the philosophic principles or whatever the business school principles, they've conducted themselves not as this right evil empire that we fear it could become again since right. and, it's been that evil empire right so. and and that's and that's the the idea yes that is the heart of these decrees being stripped away is that this industry seems to be good there seems to be a symbiotic relationship in place between studios and between theaters and everybody needs to rely on one another and it's that dog chasing its tail analogy is i mean as long as blockbusters exist and make a lot of money for both sides right they, they're going to need each other so if there is a benevolent thinking behind all of this, are they saying that all of these flush entities, whether it's Amazon, Netflix, or Universal, I mean, they've been relatively flush. They have made a lot of money over the last decade, mm-hmm. right? We na- need to move some of that money over to movie theaters because movie theaters as a business as an industry is no longer flush with capital and cash they are over leveraged they are in trouble is this the industry trying to prevent a disaster for itself it's a big question but it has to be asked here because again i'm wondering who's ultimately behind this if this is if this is an amazon behind this or big government they're trying to say all right we want to I mean, maybe they would say if they were truly evil, let's let the movie uh, theaters fail and then we'll buy them up cheap. So maybe they're not behind it. Well, maybe I just answered my own question. Here's what I think happens at the end of all this. And we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're going long. And, and the only part we haven't touched on in the, the, uh, the decision is, uh, I mean, that's that's the basis of the decision. The only part, part we haven't touched on is the public comment, uh, which basically I, I can get into another time if we want, but it. it there's a very questionable writing in there that makes no sense to me. And it gives rise to Netflix again, just being the big bad in the room. But in terms of Netflix being the big bad in the room and, and other big bads in the room, I don't think we're in danger of having, you know, universal run rampant or, Uh or one of these studios run rampant. I, I do think this opens the door very much of having some conglomerate, that doesn't rely on the movie industry as its main source of revenue to come in and buy up a major theater chain or two and have a majority of screens in this country 
and then doing the opposite of what everyone seems to be worried about. Everyone's worried about studios taking over. I'm Mm -hmm. worried about there being a theatrical conglomerate. And instead of studios dictating terms and only showing their content in their own theaters, a conglomerate owns most of the screens. They jack the prices way up on everyone, and they don't give a shit about diversifying what they show. They only choose to show revenue-producing films like blockbusters. Uh, We've already seen progress made towards multiplexes, trending in the direction of a more intimate theatrical experience, more personal space, less total seats, higher prices for luxury. I can see that being a trend that continues. And then you're creating a demand in two ways if you have these conglomerates that come in and redo these theaters you dictate when and where people can see top titles if you own all the theaters and you cut down on seating and increase luxury you make the number of people able to see the titles at any one time fewer without losing any revenue and that's what i think the danger in this is i think a, a studio or a conglomerate that does movies on the side like amazon like apple this opens the door for them to say We can redo the entire theatrical experience and own it and franchise it and run it in this country. And we can tell studios who need theaters still for their blockbusters, especially when and where they can show uh, their films. All right. So I need to do a scouring of the Shire end of the Lord of the Rings version of what you just said, because I need to take this to the the scariest level. Mm -hmm. Let's say Amazon buys AMC after AMC fails. Amazon recognizes that viewership is down in this country. They should not own all of the AMC theaters or they should not operate all of the AMC theaters. They should basically turn, you know, 70% of the AMC theaters or 40% of them into working movie theaters and sell off the the other real estate. They're basically saying 40% at higher prices with you know, good enough luxury movie theater experiences will make us the same amount of money that we used to make. And we don't care about that amount of money as much in the long term as some other symbiotic movie studios might with that business model. We just are looking at turning a, a quick buck now. And this would be my fear for movie theaters going yeah, the and way that's of where, live music. Yeah, right. I mean, if you think about live music, you're charging 100 bucks per... You know, that's what I don't want to see happen. And that's when you're talking about only the movies that make money in theaters. And, and it really boxes available. out... It ultimately boxes out a lot of the independently run theaters. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if you decrease movie-going habits the world over because the chains are no longer there, then the next generation is not going to go to the movies the way you and I did. And if you make a a small independent movie, if there's a conglomerate that owns a majority of screens, if Apple owns the majority of theaters now Mm -hmm. uh, and isn't interested in showing your movie, you're not going to just go to... You might go to one or two or a handful of art houses in L.A. and New York, but why you're just going to make a deal with Netflix. Yeah. I mean, you're and, not going to do anything else with your movie. You're not going to bother just going art house to art house and, and, and negotiating with each independent theater owner about whether or not they can meet your demands and you can make enough money showing your movie on screens when VOD and PVOD and all these streaming networks are right there. So this is, I mean, Netflix is sitting back and laughing at all of this. There's nothing, it's such a bizarre world we live in right now because nothing happens in the industry that doesn't benefit Netflix. And I don't know how they've positioned themselves this way, but it's wild. It's wild because they figured out the home movie watching experience. Yeah. 
and they've figured it out to the point where they can sell it for cheap and they have what MoviePass always wanted to have for the theatrical movie-going experience, the most subscribers. Most people have Netflix accounts. The viewership is through the roof, and whenever you have that $15 a month coming from as many billions of people are subscribed to Netflix, they can cover all their costs to the point where they're making huge profits. And MoviePass could have covered, you know, all their costs if they didn't. Well, MoviePass was a different scenario because they had to pay for every movie. They had to pay top dollar for every movie in terms of a ticket to the studios because of the studio system. So that business model didn't work. But ultimately, they're trying to float their business model with enough subscribers. In this particular case, Netflix, they've nailed the home movie watching experience. And that's why they're so successful. And that's why they would love for independent cinema to become basically a branch of their service. And they've already gotten a head start in that. I mean, we've already said how many times that Netflix is the home of the mid-budget picture right now. We've seen so many microcosms of the theory that you just laid out. Uh, we've yeah, seen so I, many I truly... microcosms happening during this pandemic. And, and, and look, I mean, if a, a conglomerate comes along and wants to own the majority of screens, right, it's going to have to be somebody with deep pockets already. And that in and of itself is pl- problematic because it's going to be a money loser at first. So it can't be a movie pass. It can't be somebody that this is their entire business structure because they won't survive. It has to be somebody that's familiar with the entertainment industry that isn't primarily in the entertainment industry. Amazon yeah. can do this too. Uh, that can handle a big loss and work and chip away until they find the perfect balance. But what that does is because it's going to have to be a company that isn't primarily in the movie industry, you're going to have to deal with somebody, a company that doesn't care that much about movies to begin with. I mean, that's the, that's the, I'm sorry, but that's how this is going to turn out. Right. And so that's why I don't think this is a big fear about, Oh my God, Apple's going to, I mean, I should say Universal's going to run away with something or AMC is going to sell themselves out or blah, blah, blah. The fear to me is some big conglomerate, Walmart, Apple, Amazon, somebody who flirts with the movie industry as it is, comes in and changes the theatrical game, and now we're only getting blockbusters, and now independent cinema's really struggling, and now Netflix has every independent title and auteur-driven movie, and that's it. That's the world of movies as we know them from now on. All right, so we've indulged in these fears for a while now, but I do think there's another side of the coin, because I do think the movie-going business, in terms of dollars and cents... They have made billions that have still dwarfed what the billions that have been that are being made on streaming. It's it's more. It's much more. And I did those macro numbers, I think, in a previous episode for us. I think I did them actually for the AMC episode. Anyway, there's still money to be made in movie theaters. And a large reason for that is international movie going. The viewership for that has skyrocketed over the years over the last few years in particular to the point where china as a market is rivaling us as a market etc etc there's a lot of burgeoning markets right now and i don't necessarily think the pandemic has changed that and we're going to be able to follow the box office internationally over the next couple of months so that's the one that is that is a major reason why we can continue to have competition in this industry on the exhibition level another Reason that we mentioned throughout this episode, Mike, there still are safeguards here that would rule against monopolies and the scouring of the Shire examples that we gave that are that are really doomsday and apocalyptic to the point where your biggest fear is a, a movie theater conglomerate. Well, by law, 
that should be something that is illegal by antitrust law, correct? No. I mean, if it, if they made it impossible to own a theater, yeah. But there's nothing... By antitrust law, that would be a monopoly on a business. But a monopoly is, is basically just saying it's impossible to get into this industry. If there's other theaters that exist, it's not a monopoly. So the Paramount decrees were the teeth to the mouth of the watchdog. Or that, because that's what I'm trying to understand. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good way of putting it, I think. Did well, we just detooth the watchdog? What we did was make it possible for those questions to be asked in, in okay. board meetings of these major organizations. Whereas previously, they were basically non-starters. That's what we did. Jesus. So this is scarier than we thought. If it's it, it's it's impossible for a movie studio to take advantage of this right now. It's not impossible for a for a deep-pocketed conglomerate to do something nefarious. Yes. But if a deep-pocketed conglomerate wanted to monopolize the film industry before the Paramount decrees were done away with. Could they have? That's that's another question. Ask that again. I'm sorry. So basically, if Amazon wanted to monopolize the, the movie theater industry, yep. if they wanted to monopolize it in the United States, and maybe they can get over on a technicality because there's still some independent, th- independently run theaters still out there, and it's not a quote-unquote technically a monopoly. All right? We've seen this happen before in terms of, you know, just skirting the rules on technicalities if amazon had wanted to t- if they wanted to take over and they end up buying all the major movie theater chains let's say in that apocalyptic apocalyptic scenario could amazon do it if the paramount decrees were still in place i it depends on your interpretation and one of the big things about the sdny decision was uh them saying well look the players have changed not every studio was named in the paramount decrees anyway so and they make a point of saying disney wasn't even subject to the decrees so literally mm-hmm. by that dicta they're saying the rules wouldn't apply to paramount the, the decrees wouldn't apply to paramount or i mean amazon the rules wouldn't apply to amazon here that's not true and nobody in the industry had acted that way for 80 years because, and this was written in some amicus briefs, which are basically uh, parties that aren't involved directly in this suit writing to uh, express their opinion one way or the other. Some amicus briefs said, look, the decrees were a yardstick for how to act in the business. So every studio, even though they weren't a named defendant in the original Paramount case, knew that these rules applied to them. So that's why they didn't bother. So my answer was, would be, if that's true, if every studio knew to abide by these decrees, the fact that Amazon had Amazon Studios and was a studio making movies, no, they couldn't own individual theaters. The caveat to that is, well, Netflix already does. So yeah. welcome to law, Mike. You don't get a straight answer and everything takes 10 minutes to explain. And the I'm, answer is maybe. <laughs> I'm so glad I dropped out of mock trial. I am so glad I went another direction than the pre-law route because this today was terrifying uh, unnerving and i commend you for helping me through this because i knew that i wrote down x y and z but i knew i was going to freak out on you today but you handled it brilliantly i don't know if our fans at home are 
feeling better or worse, but I, I just think we were honest with them. I think yeah. there's some scary things that could potentially happen, and we aired all that out today, but nothing necessarily needs to happen, or it's not a direct cause and effect about what can happen. Like you said, there are safeguards still in place. There's also the fact that they can litigate, and nobody is big enough to, to not be litigated against, but yeah, there could be an underdog situation where independent theaters are going to be dealing with a, a very difficult business model going forward, but that's not necessarily that changed from right. the Paramount decrease. They were, you know, on, in an uphill battle no matter what. Like Michael McDonald once sang, we've got such a long way to go <laughs> to make it to the border of Mexico. That'll be the words of the wisdom, the words of wisdom <laughs> for today, Mike. I'll, I'll agree with you on that. Uh, guys, I appreciate your kind words, good sir. I hope we were able to parse through this and make it a little more understandable uh, and, and give you guys a better sense of what the impact of this could be and also could not be and what the court was thinking. I do want to note Judge Torres, mm-hmm. as far as the political aspect of this, uh, she was assigned to her seat by Obama. So it's an Obama era judge writing an opinion for a Trump led white house. So there is some bipartisanship to the thinking that these decrees should be done away with. Um, It's it it comes back to the question. Are there movie gods or are there movie devils? And that's probably the (laughs) wrong question to ask. Uh, This is a complex issue. Like I said before, and yeah, I mean, I you did a great job because I'm literally saying to you throughout this episode, is there a benevolent force behind this or is this the end of all things? It's no, both. So good job. It's always both. <laughs> Guys, uh, if you do have questions, sincerely, we do want to hear from you. Uh, hopefully I made things a little more clear, but like. If Mike didn't ask a question that was on your mind, if you're dying to know something, let us know. Drop us a line. We want to hear from you. And as well, you can always drop us a comment, question, or concern about anything else we do here in the MMO Empire. You can leave us those at Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram, at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com, and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts, including and especially the Apple Podcast app. And if you are listening to us on the Apple Podcast app, if you would be so kind to take five seconds and leave us a five-star review that would be really really helpful and make our day and i did a lot of research for this episode so that'd be nice as a payment that's my hourly fee god damn it you leave me a five-star review i agree (laughs) mike you said your words of wisdom let the good people know what's coming next from mmo so we got a lot of guests coming up, and we, we talked about part one of our two-part uh, collaboration with Swell Entertainment there. So if New Mutants does, in fact, come out at the end of this month like it is slated to do, then uh, we have plans to review that with Amanda from Swell Entertainment. Uh, we got a James Bond episode that we need to get to, Michael. Yeah, we do. We kind of been putting that off. Uh, overall, we've been putting out less stuff just because of all the craziness that's been happening. I'm glad it's happening now and not during Oscar season. Yeah. But I do think we both want to get more episodes out again, even though today you're getting a 90-minute episode. So I don't know if we're putting out less volume in terms of minutes. <laughs> but we got a mid-year Oscars report that I think we're calling a quarter three now. We got a guest slated for that, so hopefully that happens for you guys at the end of this week. It's a, a lot of loaded questions for an expert in the business, one that we've had on the show before that we're excited about bringing back. So hopefully that happens, and uh, you guys will get some uh, Oscar-centric talk at the end of this week, like I said. 
There you go. So a lot of stuff still in the pipeline to come from MMO. Guys, as always, when reality sucks or you have a bunch of legal terms and decisions you don't understand, you can come watch movies with us and hopefully get a little clarity or at least share some laughs. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round. Without the stuffiness, we will see you very soon. See you.